Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello there, history friend. Zach Twomley here, and you're listening to a catch-up episode for the Thirty Years' War, which will bring you, conveniently, up to the point where Frederick accepts the crown of Bohemia and basically all of Europe goes over a cliff in 1619. This episode can be useful for you if you'd like to skip the first 18 episodes of this narrative and start later on. At the very least, it'll give you a good introduction to the major characters, and it'll also explain, essentially, how the Thirty Years' War came to be. I understand that with a conflict as big as the Thirty Years' War, it's probably a bit intimidating to just jump right into it and pick an episode, and it's hard to know where to begin. So this episode is designed to ease that problem. It's actually an episode I released the previous year, but having edited it and taken out the plugs from that period, I think you'll find that it works just as well now as it did hopefully then. So because of that, here it is now. In line with this task of repurposing some old episodes, you'll also possibly recognise two other episodes. One being an episode introducing you to my favourite story of the Thirty Years' War, and another one explaining why you will be interested in it. So two episodes serving those individual purposes. And I think, in combination with this one here, it'll be a really useful way to get a good grounding in the Thirty Years' War itself. If you joined me from various interviews I did, then you're very welcome. And if you've never listened to When Diplomacy Fails before, this is a pretty good place to start. I should add Matchlock and the Embassy, a historical fiction series set during the Thirty Years' War period, is out now. And you can get that book by clicking the link in the description below and getting it from your favourite vendors. I'm sure you're more than sick enough of me talking about it. So I won't say any more. Just know that I really appreciate all the support you've given me so far. All the reviews, all the purchases, everything else, and spreading the word has been so, so brilliant. Expect more talk on that book and the series in the future. But for now, I hope you enjoy this catch-up episode on the Thirty Years' War that will bring you up to about the year 1619. Without any further ado then, enjoy the episode. (laughs) 
To get us going at the start of the episode, we're going to talk more about the structure of the Thirty Years' War now, so you can picture in your head how it erupted, how it changed over the course of 30 years, and also that small matter of how it managed to drag on for 30 years. After that, when we break it down to more manageable chunks, some of the mystery surrounding the war will hopefully be dispelled, and you'll be able to picture it in your head a little easier. When that's done, we're going to look at the two most important characters responsible for fanning the flames of a small revolt into a total European war. And if that sounds good to you, then let's properly begin. I'd ask that you humour me for a little while, because in my view, one of the best ways to explain the Thirty Years' War is through a metaphor. Picture this, then. A dance lasting, let's say, 30 years. I know, I know, just go with it. Within this dance, we have obviously got dancers, and these dancers represent a particular power or state that fought in the Thirty Years' War. Hopefully that makes sense. However, these dancers are not all in action at the same time, and some of these dancers don't even move for long portions of the dance. Other dancers look like they couldn't care less, while other dancers still seem to be scheming against their fellow dancer. At the centre of attention is a man who dances for 30 whole years, though. He's a man we'll call Habsburg, and over the course of those 30 years, he's joined by a Danish dancing partner, a Swedish dancing partner, and then a French dancing partner. Finally, after about 20 years of dancing, this Habsburg dancer is joined by other couples dancing together. This is when the beat drops, and the Habsburg dancer even intermingles with those other couples. I would love to see this metaphor visualised personally, but hopefully you understand what I'm getting at. The Thirty Years' War was not a continuous war between the same states or individuals. It was instead a connected set of conflicts, which all had one factor in common. And that factor being the presence of the Habsburg family. And that's why we called that dancer Habsburg, because it was the Habsburg family based in Austria, Spain, South Italy, Portugal and most of the New World that served as the anchor of the Thirty Years' War. No matter who became involved in it, there was always a Habsburg at the heart of this war. And it should come as no surprise then that one of the major consequences of the Thirty Years' War was the weakening of this Habsburg dynasty. From 1618 to 1648, the Thirty Years' War was fought across the continent, and it involved a wide variety of actors, including states which don't exist anymore, or collections of states led by a common ruler. We should get something important out of the way first. We know that contemporaries writing after 1648 regarded this conflict as the Thirty Years' War. Thirty Years' War is not a term which modern historians have invented to make things handier for us later on. That said, soldiers and statesmen fighting in the 1620s obviously had no idea what they were in for, and the states that intervened had no vision of dragging everything out until it neatly ended three decades later. Somewhat incredibly, having said all this, the first and last battle of the Thirty Years' War was fought in the same place, the city of Prague, a city you've likely heard of, which now serves as the capital of the Czech Republic, but in the 17th century was the capital of the Kingdom of Bohemia. Sometimes, history is accidentally poetic, but what was no accident were the decisions of several powers to get involved in the conflict. You'll remember my dancing metaphor, and that Denmark, Sweden and France all joined the Habsburg Dancer at some point before the beat dropped. This reflects the idea that the Thirty Years' War was a war fought in several phases, or parts, 
with each part of the war distinguished by the intervening power who tried to bring the Habsburgs down. Now, we are going to explain how the war erupted in 1618 in a little while, but before we do that, to give you an overview of the war's direction, it might help to know that Denmark intervened in 1625, only to get shown up on the dance floor. Okay, I promise I will abandon that metaphor now. But yes, Denmark intervened in 1625 and they basically got battered out of it. So Sweden intervened in 1630. And if you've heard of the famed Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus, then this is where he enters that story. Sweden achieved wonders in the war, but in the end the Habsburgs were too strong for them to face alone. So the French intervened in 1635, after years of covertly battering the Habsburg family wherever they could. Finally then, by 1635 when France had intervened, by this point several conflicts had congealed into one, and the allies of Sweden, France and the Dutch sometimes called the Triple Alliance, but confusingly they didn't fight all branches of the Habsburg family at the same time, so be careful with that, but they effectively joined forces to take the Habsburgs down, which took another little while because the war dragged on till 1648, and didn't even end in some cases for some of the combatants involved. This is what can be considered the spark notes or cliff notes version of the war. The war continued because new powers kept on intervening, and only from 1635 did the war represent what we would call a world war, with theatres from Brazil to Moscow, and few powers being able to stay completely out of it. This was one of the themes of my book, in fact, and it's ripped straight out from what the Swedish king declared to his relative in Brandenburg, Brandenburg being a beleaguered German state in the northeast of the empire. This is a fight between God and the devil, Gustavus Adolphus had proclaimed in 1630 when attempting to recruit allies to use against the dominant Habsburgs. If he is for God, then he must join me. If he is for the devil, then he must fight me. There is no third way. This was the Swedish king's way of saying that neutrality is impossible, so pick me or I will destroy you. Because Pick Me or I Will Destroy You doesn't make for a very good book title, I went with For God or the Devil instead. Gustavus proved correct in this declaration, because even those states who didn't become directly involved in the war did become diplomatically involved in some way. Far to the east, to take one example, the Swedish king had persuaded the Tsar of Russia to attack Poland, who was Sweden's archenemy, so that, by distracting Poland, Sweden would be free to intervene then in Germany. I've always found this aspect of the Thirty Years' War so fascinating, and it's a large part of the reason why I feel my brain stuttering when people say that the Thirty Years' War is boring. But let's not get too caught up on Sweden, although it's pretty easy to do so. Remember the broad lay of the land with the Thirty Years' War? There was a Danish phase from 1625 to 29, a Swedish phase from 1630 to 34, and then the French phase from 1635 to 48. Maybe you'll need to re-listen to that to get it all down again, but just think of these five-year intervals until 1635, that is, when different powers intervene and basically make everything worse. Because the war had widened so much by 1635, I tend to refer to that 13-year period of 1635 to 48 as the years of coalitions. And within my book, I've actually divided it into parts according to these phases. Remember, once again though, that no matter who became involved in this conflict, they always had to reckon with the Habsburgs on each occasion. That should give you some idea of how powerful the Habsburgs were. 
Now I know that you probably have several questions right now, such as what about the period of 1618-24 to before Denmark got involved? Well, we're going to look at that in just a bit, but before we do, I think it's worth asking something. Who were the Habsburgs? Before stumbling across this episode here, you've more than likely heard of the Habsburgs. They're probably the most important European dynasty, or at least among the top tier. Their longevity is reflected in the fact that this is the same Habsburg family who would abdicate their Austrian crown after World War I. From the early 15th century until 1914, then, you couldn't do anything in Europe without first thinking of the Habsburgs. Well, okay, let's say until 1865, right before Prussia stomped all over them, but I'm really just saying that because, you know, Bismarck. While we know them as based in Vienna in the Austrian heartland, and mostly as a German-speaking dynasty, over the course of history, the Habsburgs managed to arrange several coups, largely through marriage. One of these coups was to marry into the Spanish royal family. I'll spare you the details as to how they did this, but if you've heard of the Spanish Armada from 1588 and Queen Elizabeth bravely resisting Spain all on her own, then you've likely heard of a Spanish Habsburg king. Philip II, in fact, was probably the most successful Habsburg Spanish king of all. We deal with his son Philip III and his grandson Philip IV in our Thirty Years War narrative, so that should give you an indication of where we are with this story. Philip II died in 1598, but Philip III, though he wasn't a micromanager like his father, was still prestigious enough to maintain Spain as Europe's foremost power, and in fact as the world's first superpower. This might tempt us to view Spain and Austria as the main actors in the Thirty Years' War, and sometimes, to simplify things, I do describe the Thirty Years' War like this. It would be more correct, though, to view the Habsburgs as a dynasty rather than a collection of states, It was their blood and history which bound the Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburg dynasty together after all, rather than some national affinity or political agreement between Austria and Spain's governments. In fact, to speak of governments at all in these countries wouldn't even really be correct. As absolute rulers, the Habsburg dynasty in Spain and Austria had absolute power to rule as they wished. Expansion into the New World had made Spain, and therefore the Habsburg dynasty, even more powerful and fabulously wealthy. The prosperity didn't last forever, but at the turn of the 17th century at least, the Habsburgs were recognised as world leaders. You, like me, might look at all these facts and wonder how a dynasty could have risen so high. Was this the 17th century equivalent of the Lannisters? Did the Habsburgs always pay their debts? Well, actually, no. Philip II had declared bankruptcy several times during his reign of Spain, and his is considered one of the better reigns. What the Habsburgs had on their side was a long history of rising through the ranks of European nobility through marriage. Think of it as the one red paperclip idea. If you weren't aware, one red paperclip is this idea that you start with a paperclip, and you make better and better trades until eventually you emerge with a brand new car or something crazy like that. The Habsburgs were kind of like the marriage equivalent of one red paperclip. They started out small with unimpressive lower nobility marriages, but they married their way higher and higher until they themselves were considered royalty. In 1438, the Habsburgs outmaneuvered their rivals to such an extent that they seized control over the office of Holy Roman Emperor, which we'll talk about more a bit later. As emperor of all the Germans, 
This brought the Habsburgs immense prestige. Prestige which they used to marry into the Spanish royal family as we said. And in the year 1500, the product of all of these marriages, a child was born. This child was called Charles V and he was the most powerful man you've probably never heard of. Ruling simultaneously as King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, Charles's domains stretched from its central European base northwards along the Rhine border with France and into the Netherlands. All of the Netherlands, then along Germany's Baltic coastline, then the furthest reaches of Germany, along the border with Poland and then snaking along the disputed border with the Ottoman Turks, then back down south into portions of Italy, and that was just one crown that Charles V possessed. As King of Spain, he also had portions of Spain, of course, southern France and south Italy, but that wasn't even all. He also had lands and possessions in the New World, thanks to the defeat of the Aztecs and the plundering of their gold and silver mines. Charles V was the most powerful man since the Roman emperors, which was only appropriate since he claimed legitimacy as emperor over all the Germans from the Roman Empire of yore. The Holy Roman Empire, after all, was supposed to be the successor state of the Roman Empire, at least to some extent. We don't need to get into the details of the Holy Roman Empire now, but it might make it easier to think of it as a kind of feudal arrangement, where at the head you have the emperor, and below the emperor you have all these independent states, which are independent to some extent, but still at the end of the day, and especially when it comes to German affairs, have to toe the line of the emperor. So his claims to ruling over all of Germany might be disputed, but Charles V was at least powerful enough to appear like early modern Europe's answer to Augustus. Despite having all this power, things were not all rosy for Charles V, despite his obvious powers and his impressive abilities in his own right. The Ottoman Turks we mentioned possessed an equally impressive empire of their own, which stretched from Egypt to the Balkans, and they were expanding after conquering Constantinople in 1453, making the Islamic threat seem more terrifying than ever before. Yet it was the issues with Christianity, not Islam, that kept Charles V awake at night. More specifically, the schism within Christianity in the Reformation that began under Martin Luther, and that provided the greatest test of all to Charles's rule. By the time Germans had made their religious peace in 1555, Charles V was an exhausted shell of himself after fighting decades worth of religious wars against his fellow Germans and not really achieving much of anything in the end. One thing that Charles was sure of though, and one thing that he had definitively learned, no Habsburg should ever be burdened with the responsibility of ruling over so many lands again. So Charles decided to split his inheritance so that Spain and the New World and another portion of Europe, the Netherlands, would go to his son, his son being the man we recently met, Philip II, while Austria, the position of Holy Roman Emperor and all that entailed, would go to Charles' younger brother. With this act of splitting his inheritance, Charles created two branches of the Habsburg family, one Spanish and senior, the other a cadet Austrian branch, and this state of affairs continued right up to our narrative in 1618. By that time, the two dynasties were motivated by new concerns and led by different characters. They'd also taken to a favoured new policy like a duck takes to water, that policy being inbreeding. But who were those characters? Well, the Thirty Years' War is chock full of them, 
to understand the first leg of this war, probably the first third, as well as its beginnings, we need only to meet two of these people right now. So keep these two names in your head. The first of these names is Ferdinand, the leader of the Austrian House of Habsburg, King of Bohemia and Holy Roman Emperor by the time the Thirty Years' War kicked off. As we learned already, Ferdinand's family, the House of Habsburg, had maintained its grip on the office of Emperor since 1438, even though technically, really, the Emperor was supposed to be elected. Well, to this, the House of Habsburg could argue that the Emperor technically was still elected. It's just that since 1438, he was elected from a pool of candidates who all happened to be Habsburgs. How the House of Habsburg controlled and manipulated its candidacy over and over again is another story for another day, but the short answer, and it's a common theme you're probably discovering by now, is marriage. Marriage hadn't just brought offspring, it also brought alliances with other countries and control over their affairs as well. Where this had worked most effectively, this silver bullet of marriage, perhaps more effectively than the House of Habsburg could ever have hoped, was in Spain. The point of all these details is to show that by 1618, the House of Habsburg was very powerful indeed. Since Charles V's death in the early 1560s, the two branches of the dynasty he left behind mostly went from strength to strength. Charles's younger brothers, descendants, hadn't produced many bright sparks as Holy Roman Emperors, but that didn't matter so much when Spain shone like a gleaming, gargantuan golden statue. Charles V's son, Philip, had been Spain's most effective king, the kind of micromanager which a growing empire like Spain's really needed, and he maintained an active and aggressive foreign policy throughout his reign in the latter half of the 1500s. Spain took advantage of another fact of European politics at this time. France was falling in on itself during its wars of religion, and the country was effectively a non-entity being ripped apart by different factions. No longer having to worry about its more populous neighbour to the north, which had traditionally been more powerful, Philip II found that it was easier to intervene in French affairs than ever before. What was more, he made friends with several independent states along the French border, such as Alsace and Lorraine, which ensured that Spain had a straight route to reinforce its other significant European possession, the Netherlands. At first glance, the idea that Spain could fight the Dutch in a war of independence might seem crazy, until you look again and you realise it was definitely crazy. Crazy though it was that Spain locked itself in a mostly losing effort with its former Dutch vassal for 80 years, seriously, the explanation for this weird state of affairs is as simple as the explanation for the rise of the Habsburgs. It begins with M, we probably know it already, marriage. Remember, the Habsburgs were all one extended family, so while Charles V owned everything, he passed to his son Philip II, Spain, the New World, and also one of the most lucrative corners of any continent. The region nowadays consists mostly of Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, and portions of France and Germany, but in medieval times, it was the Burgundian Netherlands. When this region was united, it boasted fabulously wealthy merchant towns like Amsterdam, Antwerp and Rotterdam, and Charles V probably believed that he was giving his son a very special present when he left the region to Philip, as he abdicated. This gift 
soon became a poisoned chalice, though, thanks to a variety of factors, including Philip's own religious dogmatism, the Reformation's after-effects, and a plain fact that the Dutch and the Spanish hadn't seen eye to eye for some time. This religious divide, though, to a very large degree, the Protestant North and the Catholic South, determined what parts of the region would emerge independent as the Dutch Republic, and what parts would stay under Spain's control as the Spanish Netherlands, which you can mostly imagine as Belgium today. Setbacks like the Dutch War of Independence, which erupted in the late 1560s, showed that Philip didn't get it right all the time, but he did arrange a special sort of coup in 1580 when he took advantage of neighbouring Portugal's lack of heirs to claim the crown and the country for himself. In doing this, Philip created the Iberian Union of Portugal and Spain, a formidable combination which didn't just include Portugal, it also included all of its overseas possessions, into South America with Brazil particularly. This provided additional muscle to Spain, and though the failed armada against England in 1588 was yet another setback, Philip didn't dwell on this for long. Queen Elizabeth's England still wasn't strong enough to mount a successful attack, and the English mostly concerned themselves with attacking Spain through its Dutch rebel problem, while the Spanish mostly attacked the English through Ireland. You may wonder why we went on this tangent when we're meant to be talking about the Thirty Years' War. Well, in response to this, I would argue that these ingredients all add up to a more interesting story. The war between the Dutch and Spanish, believe it or not, was still ongoing by 1618, though it was to be on pause for three more years. War between those two powers was such an accepted part of European life by that point that other interested parties marked their calendars for 1621, when the truce between the Dutch and the Spanish would expire and the war would be back on. Little did everyone realise, of course, that another conflict would erupt in Europe first. All this is to demonstrate that while Ferdinand could rely on Spain, he also had to bear in mind that even while Spain was his most important ally, Madrid was terribly distracted with its Dutch problem. Ferdinand was determined to stay neutral, by the way, in this conflict between Spain and the Dutch, which meant that Austria's Habsburgs could still trade with the Dutch, even though it irked their Spanish cousins. In the murky world of 17th century loyalties, though, it was quite normal for soldiers from Germany to serve for Spain against the Dutch. Spain, in fact, was suffering from some serious depopulation problems, which made getting soldiers directly from Spain more difficult. Worse than that, Spain had additional glaring internal problems, such as coin devaluation, wastage and endemic corruption in some areas. And these were issues even before Philip II had passed the baton on to his son. Yet still, Spain did offer an element of stability which no other ally could. First and foremost, these were Ferdinand's relatives, and they could be relied upon if anything happened to threaten the Habsburg position in the Holy Roman Empire. And no, Spain hadn't won every battle. She'd made some whoopsies, but her army was still the best and most professional in the world. And despite her financial woes, I mean, every state was in debt to some extent. All it would take was another great triumph or haul of precious metals from the New World, and all would be well again. The 17th century was the century where Spanish decline became a fact of European life, but I do have to emphasize the fact that it remained a powerhouse for at least the first half of the century, 
and its Habsburg dynasty remained the envy of all while this was the case. In fact, though there were cracks in the facade, many were eager to bring the House of Habsburg down altogether. One figure in particular stood out above the rest, though. His is the second name you need to remember, Frederick. Specifically, Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. When the Thirty Years' War erupted in 1618, Frederick wasn't even 22 years old, but he was the head of a family which had made a career out of opposing the House of Habsburg wherever possible. This was easier for Frederick to do than most, because he happened to be the Elector Palatine, which meant that he was one of seven individuals entitled to cast a vote for the new emperor. You remember that I said that the emperors were supposed to be elected? Well, this is when that process becomes important. Frederick was one of those people that got to cast one of these votes, and that meant that he was probably the most important German Protestant ruler by 1618. But even though he was arguably the most important Protestant German ruler, he was very far indeed from the most powerful. So, if he lacked the power, how did he become so important and influential? Well, Frederick had taken his cues from the Habsburgs, and he worked to ensure that his dynasty, the Wittelsbach dynasty, was as well connected to Protestant Europe as the House of Habsburg was to Catholic Europe. Surely you see the dangers then. These two rivals, Ferdinand and Frederick, were courting different power blocks, and they were mobilising parties on their side for a looming war. And yet, while this is sort of what happened, the reality is less straightforward. The Thirty Years' War didn't begin between Frederick and Emperor Ferdinand because of their simple dislike for one another. Those feelings might have moved them to work against each other in private, but it couldn't serve as grounds for open warfare. It should also be said that in this situation, Ferdinand, as the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, held more power and influence than Frederick did. Technically, in fact, according to the terms of the Holy Roman Empire, Frederick was Ferdinand's feudal vassal, since the Emperor was supposed to be the supreme authority within Germany. Although they were nominally independent in Imperial or Holy Roman German matters, these German states were supposed to follow the Emperor's line. Frederick, you'll be unsurprised to learn, wasn't very interested in kowtowing to Ferdinand, even if Ferdinand was the Emperor. He was far more interested in reducing the authority of the House of Habsburg, and using other friends dotted across Europe in order to do it. Legally, Frederick was the Emperor's vassal, and in terms of demographics, Frederick ruled over lands that contained about 600,000 people. These lands, split into the Upper and Lower Palatinate, and located mostly along the Rhine, were minuscule compared to the towering domains of the House of Habsburg. Frederick's resources didn't add up to one-tenth of the monetary and military power of the House of Habsburg, which was spread across the world. Frederick was a German minnow, swimming not just with a shark, but the world's biggest shark. So we might wonder then, perhaps the question isn't how Frederick and Ferdinand's rivalry made war inevitable, but instead one of why Ferdinand, if he was so much more powerful than Frederick, didn't just ignore his unruly subject and his machinations. The reason why Ferdinand couldn't ignore Frederick is because Frederick had those aforementioned connections, and just as the Thirty Years' War was kicking off, Frederick seemed more determined than ever to make use of them. And now the time has come to talk about Bohemia. 
Nowadays, Bohemia consists mostly of the Czech Republic, but in 1618, the Czech Republic didn't exist, and Bohemia had a seriously important role in the running of the Holy Roman Empire. You might remember that I said earlier, Frederick was powerful and influential in Germany because he was one of seven electors who got to vote to decide the next emperor. Well, the King of Bohemia was another one of these electors. Its king could cast a vote with as much weight as Frederick's vote, and that made him incredibly powerful. So, how did the House of Habsburg feel about the kings of Bohemia? Well, you may be surprised to know they liked these kings so much that they decided to hold a monopoly on the Bohemian crown. For over a century, in fact, the kings of Bohemia had all been Habsburgs. It was quite genius if you think about it, by holding this vote, by holding the crown of Bohemia, you have an even greater chance of ensuring that the emperor is chosen from your dynasty. There was a bit of a problem with Bohemia's situation though, and this is where religion comes in. More specifically, by 1618, it was becoming something of a huge problem that the Habsburgs were staunch Catholics, whereas the kingdom of Bohemia was populated by Protestants of all shades. In previous decades, Habsburg kings of Bohemia had tried to ingratiate themselves towards the Bohemian people through generous religious concessions. But the new king of Bohemia, who ascended to the throne in 1617, intended to change all that. What was this new king of Bohemia's name? Well, his name was Ferdinand of the House of Habsburg, the same Ferdinand who was Frederick's worst foe and who ruled as Holy Roman Emperor from Vienna from 1619 at least. Any man who wished to be emperor had first to be confirmed as the King of Bohemia. It was almost like a rite of passage, but it guaranteed he'd be able to vote for himself when the time came. It was thus very important that Bohemia did confirm the staunchly Catholic Ferdinand, and it might surprise you to learn that Bohemia's crown was also elective. But why would these religiously plural Bohemians vote for the staunchly Catholic Ferdinand as their king? Surely this would be like turkeys voting for Christmas? Well, Ferdinand managed to bypass all this, and he ensured that he was confirmed as Bohemia's king by, basically, lying his head off and promising to respect their religious freedoms, when in reality Ferdinand knew full well, and his Bohemian subjects probably suspected that he intended to force Catholicism down everyone's throat. This makes it seem a little blunt, but Ferdinand was motivated to a large extent by his religious faith. Second on his list of priorities, or first depending on whom you ask, was ensuring that the House of Habsburg remained supreme. Now it just so happened that these two missions, protecting Catholicism and protecting the Habsburg supremacy, intertwined in a now famous revolt which erupted in Prague in May 1618. After many months of trying to work with the Habsburgs and their new king, the Bohemians found that they couldn't abide by Ferdinand's stringent religious laws and obvious provocations, and this combination ignited the Third Bohemian Revolt in less than a decade. At this stage, Ferdinand was just trying to get his way. There was no guarantee that a three-decade war was about to follow. Also, as we just said, Bohemia had revolted three times since 1609, this being the Third Revolt, so it probably all seemed like business as usual to most observant Europeans. This time though, the situation was different, because the Bohemians weren't just revolting, they were also fighting on the battlefield against the Habsburg influence. They came close to capturing Vienna twice, and the rebels, after failing for the second time, decided that they needed more muscle if this was going to work. 
and at that moment, the originally crazy idea of deposing their king became more popular among the rebel ranks again. Could they do it? Could the rebels really go as far as deposing Ferdinand as king and offering the crown of Bohemia to someone else? Remember what we said about Bohemia's importance. It held a vote which would decide future Holy Roman emperors. What would be the consequences if a foreigner or an enemy of the Habsburgs came to hold this crown of Bohemia? If this happened, they could potentially vote against the Habsburgs or just as bad, elect a Protestant Holy Roman Emperor. Gross! What would Charlemagne say? Well, it is thanks to this troubling concoction of religious and political reasons that we can say with certainty that the beginnings of the Thirty Years' War are pretty darn complicated. If the beginnings seem complex, though, then what followed wasn't all that hard to follow. The Bohemian rebels offered the crown, as you probably suspected, to Frederick after deposing Ferdinand, who they didn't like so much anymore. Frederick was the Elector Palatine and avowed foe of the House of Habsburg, and you can probably see where this is going. Small though Frederick was in many ways, he was already empowered with a vote when it came to elect an emperor. If he was given another vote through the possession of the Crown of Bohemia, then the Habsburgs would probably have to kiss their monopoly on the office of emperor goodbye. The other five electors could be persuaded to vote any potential way if the offers were good enough, and Ferdinand, if he wanted to stay emperor for longer than a season, couldn't afford to take that chance. The Habsburg grip on the Holy Roman Emperor position had to be an iron grip, or it wasn't much of a grip at all. Being the emperor brought prestige and power which no other position in Germany could match. If the House of Habsburg weren't Holy Roman Emperors, then what even were they? Some curious duchy? Some curious family in the south of Germany? Spain and the New World might be their domain for now, but Germany was their source and their homeland. Also, who knew what horrors awaited the Catholics of the Empire if a Protestant emperor suddenly assumed power? For the sake of his dynasty and the preservation of Catholicism in South Germany and Europe, Ferdinand believed that he had to act, and act quickly if the terrible did occur and the Habsburg position was fundamentally threatened. If Frederick did loudly announce his acceptance of the Bohemian crown, all these complex threads and gears would whir into life and Ferdinand would have his casus belli against his foe. This would be Frederick's Rubicon moment, and if he crossed it, Ferdinand would feel unable to hold back. He would have to smite Frederick, through means both savoury and unsavoury, and the Habsburgs would feel well within their rights to grind Frederick's palatinate into dust, or at least to hand Frederick's lands over to someone else in lieu of payment, because, oh yeah, Ferdinand and his Austrian Habsburg family were actually pretty broke. But surely this was all speculation. After all, what was in it for Frederick if he did decide to accept the Bohemian crown? It should go without saying that if Frederick had decided to march for the Bohemian crown, he'd be taking an immense gamble. The balance of power was certainly set against him, and if he failed, then Frederick's lands would be overrun by his worst enemy, and even his status as an elector would be at risk. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why should a victorious emperor permit Ferdinand to retain his vote? Because the empire's constitution said so? Please. If the risks for failure were obvious, then the consequences of a success and a triumphant retention of the Bohemian crown were akin to Frederick's dream. To shatter the Habsburgs' hold on the position of Holy Roman Emperor, and to do so through the constitution, which was in place, by outvoting the Habsburgs when the time came, now that was a truly patriotically German thing to do. All depended upon Frederick, but actually, if you remember what I said earlier, Frederick didn't expect to do much of the heavy lifting himself. Hailing from what amounted to a small duchy of roughly half a million people, Frederick alone could never stand up to the might of the House of Habsburg. That was, until Frederick was joined by his allies, who had been tied to Frederick also by marriage or inheritance, or other promises. In fact, it deserves mention that the Bohemians had offered Frederick the crown before anyone else because he was so well-connected. Frederick V, the belief went, boasted the allies necessary to defend a coup like seizing the Bohemian crown from under the Habsburg's nose. And the Bohemian rebels gambled that since they were going the whole hog and deposing their king anyway, they may as well call in the leadership of someone who would be able to defend their seditious act. But just how well-connected was Frederick to the rest of Europe? Well, it may interest you to know that he was very connected indeed, and that those connections can still be felt even today. Queen Elizabeth II, in fact, could trace her lineage all the way back to Frederick and Elizabeth Stuart's daughter, Sophie. And if you know your English monarchs, you'll know that this is Sophie, who married into the House of Hanover, and then produced all those Georgian kings. So really, it can all be traced back to what Frederick, and Frederick's wife Elizabeth Stuart, did at this point. Aside from modern-day evidence, though, we know that Frederick's connections were considerable. 
His marriage to Elizabeth Stuart brought both Elizabeth and Frederick much joy. They seemed genuinely in love, but just as important as this love, we might say, was the fact that Frederick's father-in-law, by way of this marriage, was now James I and VI. And in addition to this, Frederick had made a great impression on the British when he came to marry his bride Elizabeth a few years before the Thirty Years' War broke out. This sympathy among the British public could certainly be turned to Frederick's advantage. Through his wife's connections, Frederick also had an uncle by law in Denmark, which was the most powerful of the Baltic kingdoms, for the moment at least. And it didn't stop there. Frederick's mother had been the daughter of William the Silent. William the Silent had been the renowned leader of the Dutch revolt against Spain, which, as we said, was still ongoing by this point. The Dutch House of Orange was a curious institution. It wasn't quite a royal family, but it was still a seriously prominent and influential one. And when the time came to fight against Spain, it was the leaders of this House of Orange that generally led the way. This meant that the Dutch House of Orange could be called upon, and thus the Netherlands itself could be called upon, if Frederick needed aid. Further afield in Germany, Frederick's sister had married another elector, this one being George William of Brandenburg. George William of Brandenburg was the weakest of the electors by a country mile, and he ruled the most unproductive of lands. But this unassuming state in the northeast of Germany would surprise everyone. In time, it would evolve into the Kingdom of Prussia, so there was great potential there. To run it down then from the top, Frederick was connected in at least some way to England, Denmark, the Dutch Republic and Brandenburg, while he was also, by right of his titles and history of opposition to the Emperor, the beacon of the anti hasburg movement, and at the time that the Thirty Years' War broke out, he was the leader of the Evangelical Union, which was a collection of German Protestant princes, mostly of the more combative Protestant variety, but certainly containing moderates too. Surely the Bohemian rebels believed there was no better candidate than Frederick to lead their revolt. If he said yes, then Frederick would be swept up in the most blatant anti hasburg scheme that his family had ever engaged in since ever. If he succeeded, then his name would be immortalised as the man who broke the Habsburg hold on the office of Holy Roman Emperor, thus freeing Protestants across Germany and facilitating a new expansion of the Reformed faith throughout the Empire. If the Habsburgs were no longer ensconced on the Imperial throne, there would be nothing they could do to stop this tide. However, Frederick would have known that the Habsburgs would fight to the bitter end to preserve their position. He would also have known that he was utterly dependent upon his allies, more specifically his sprawling familial connections. If any one of these connections failed to step forward and help, Frederick could be in dire trouble. Historians have only recently come to terms with the fact that Frederick was very much in control of his policy. For a long time it was said that Frederick was under the influence of more experienced advisers, and that he was a follower rather than a leader. But this image of Frederick as the naive and rudderless follower goes against everything we know about him, and it doesn't make sense in the context of how his rule actually worked. Though Frederick was what we might consider an enlightened despot who took instructions and advice from valued officials, he was still a despot. As a lector, he had the power to do whatever he wished, pretty much, within the letter of the law, that is, and though Frederick the person was, by all accounts, kind and considerate, and he wanted the best for his people, he was still capable of making decisions if he wanted to, which flew in the face of all advice that he was given. 
No matter what was agreed to in the Palatinate where Frederick ruled, at the end of the day, Frederick's signature was required on all documentation to make it legal. No matter what some radical advisors thought Frederick should do, in other words, the decision was made by Frederick and Frederick alone. This means that the responsibility for what happened next rests on Frederick's shoulders. The book stopped with this 22-year-old elector, but would he say yes or would he say no? I know we haven't reached this part of the story yet in our podcast narrative, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that the very reason why the Bohemian Revolt didn't stay a Bohemian Revolt is because in September 1619, after much deliberation, Frederick said yes and made a play for the Bohemian crown. What followed can be considered the first leg or phase of the war. In a sense, this phase didn't end definitively until Frederick's death from fever in 1632. During that period then, from 1619 to 1632, Frederick remained an undaunted foe of the Habsburg influence. Spoiler alert if you weren't aware, but when the war began to go disastrously for him, Frederick kept the faith. Depending on whom you ask, Frederick was a stubborn fool who couldn't admit his faults, and thus condemned Europe to the Thirty Years' War, or he was a brave, resilient leader who kept fighting for what he believed was right. There are several shades of grey in a story like this, and it'd be wrong to blame Frederick above all, considering all the harm that Ferdinand had already done to the situation. In the early 1620s, through a combination of favours and mercenaries, Frederick maintained some form of a threat against the Habsburgs in Germany. Even when his forces were completely destroyed by 1624, the Habsburgs still couldn't sit still. Though they had virtually abandoned him when it had mattered most, Frederick's familial connections began to bear fruit once external observers started to become nervous at the Habsburg triumphs. Would anyone be safe, the argument went, in a Europe or Germany dominated by the Catholic Habsburg family? On the other side of things, and this has to be emphasised, Emperor Ferdinand didn't exactly help matters. He ratcheted up his anti-Protestant rhetoric and actions, expelling all Protestants from Bohemia by the mid-1620s, as if to teach everyone who had rebelled there a lesson, and also created a new loyal nobility there as he operated. This ensured that Bohemia in time was permanently fused to Habsburg Austria, but at the time, all this did was cause raised eyebrows, and many to nervously place their hand on their sword hilts. Even worse than his religious policy was Ferdinand's political approach. We alluded earlier to the fact that the Austrian Habsburgs were virtually broke, and to put this in perspective, Ferdinand arrested a moderate Habsburg official during the earlier period of the war, and a major motivating factor behind this arrest was the fact that they could seize this unfortunate man's treasure and jewels. That's how strapped for cash the Habsburg government was in Vienna. Even with the subsidies from Spain, Ferdinand found that he lacked the money necessary to pay his allies in Germany to side with him. This begs the question then, if Ferdinand lacked the necessary money, then how did he persuade other Germans to remain loyal to him and fight Frederick in the Habsburg's name? The answer to this is multi-layered. You could argue that a lot of these Germans just wanted to preserve the status quo and didn't want to upend the apple cart to the extent that Frederick and his supporters wanted to. A large reason, though, for why Frederick was defeated so quickly and why Frederick found it so hard to get allies that would properly help him 
is because, while Ferdinand lacked coin, he was not lacking in confiscated land. A great incentive to Ferdinand's most important German ally, Maximilian, the Duke of Bavaria, was that Maximilian would be handed more than half of Frederick's territory, and, as if that wasn't controversial or unconstitutional enough, Maximilian would also receive Frederick's titles and rights as a lector. Henceforth, Maximilian would become the Elector of Bavaria rather than a mere duke, and the Elector Palatine, Frederick's old title, would be cast to the winds. Ferdinand did his best to keep this volcanically controversial deal secret, but once news of it got out, it proved a major moral boon for Frederick's cause, and he used it as proof of his enemy's unscrupulousness, and he argued that it demonstrated Ferdinand's unfitness for office. This was really a controversy that Ferdinand couldn't escape from, and it was a controversy that lasted the length of the Thirty Years' War. When Gustavus intervened in Germany in 1630, one of his proclaimed motivations for intervening was to fix the unjust arrangement in Germany, to hand Frederick back his titles and strip the Duke of Bavaria of his. This question of what to do about Frederick's titles remained problematic throughout the Thirty Years, and was one of the reasons why Maximilian dragged Bavaria through the war until its bitter end. As those sayings went, now that Maximilian had accepted Ferdinand's offer, he and the Emperor were in cahoots, for better or worse, and Maximilian knew that if the Emperor went down, his shiny new electoral title and status would go down with it. Maximilian and the Emperor fought to preserve it then, just as Frederick continued to fight from his exile in the Netherlands, and waged endless diplomatic campaigns against the Habsburgs, which occasionally proved stunningly effective. Frederick wasn't solely responsible for the interventions of Denmark in 1625 and then Sweden in 1630, and he was dead by the time France intervened in 1635, but Frederick certainly provided a convenient excuse for these ambitious kings to get their feet wet in the German Ocean. I don't want to spoil any more of the story, but as we now know, France intervenes in 1635 after the Swedish war effort lags, so we effectively know what the structure of the conflict looked like. Of course, within this structure there was the human story, the fascinating character development, more high drama and stunning moments than Game of Thrones. If you're interested in continuing this story, you know where to go, and if you want to refresh your memory, feel free to listen to the back catalogue here, where we go through this earlier portion of the war in more detail. If you really want to listen in on something cool, though, I'll be presenting a fascinating snapshot of the war from Frederick's perspective. Now that we've met him and know a bit about him, I hope you'll join me for that. We're going to be looking in the year 1632. The Swedish king has just changed everything. Remember that opportunistic Duke of Bavaria who became the elector, Maximilian, after seizing Frederick's lands and titles? Well, when Gustavus Adolphus, the triumphant king of Sweden, defeated all in his path, this meant that Frederick finally had the chance for revenge against his Bavarian neighbour. How would Frederick get this revenge? Well, an image I will leave you with is one which saw Frederick playing tennis in the private tennis court of the defeated Bavarian leader in Munich, opposite none other than the man who had made it possible, the King of Sweden. Going from the beleaguered loser of the Thirty Years' War to being triumphant enough to play tennis on your worst enemy's tennis court alongside the King of Sweden, I'd say that's a pretty good turnaround for anyone, and we'll be looking at that story next week. <laughs>
So if you like what you've heard here, I hope you'll join me for that little taster. Remember to follow me and say hi over on Facebook and Twitter, and check out the website, wdfpodcast.com, for more information. That's going to do it for today, history friends. I hope you've enjoyed if this was your first time listening to me, and I hope that you'll tune in for other stuff we have in the future. Until then, though, my name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.